es América Latina obrera, no sé por qué no lo haces El Yankee teme a la revolución El Yankee teme grito Yankee Gohón Remontando el Amazonas, el grito rebelde del Carioca, y viene a unirse con su hermano, el obrero venezolano. América Latina obrera, América Latina obrera, América Latina. You are listening to the Hammer and Pistol Project. My name is Alejandro Cienfuegos, and I am the host of this podcast. My guest today is Adam Danker. You might know of Adam as the ski mask clad rifle wielding figure that uh is smiling has a little cigar in hand and uh also uh there's some text overlaid on the image that says loads rifle with communist intent uh it's one of my favorite images that i think i have found on the internet so my first question for you adam is uh, how does it feel to be a meme um it's it's a little surreal uh it was especially surreal when the meme was really popular um it's just odd uh seeing people post your image uh everywhere um and uh they don't like know you or anything it's just weird it's a strange sensation it's hard to describe um i'm i'm a neat <laughs> i'm as the joke goes i'm a niche micro celebrity and <laughs> i just thought that was kind of funny Indeed. I know that um, I've been on Facebook for a number of years, and I, I have seen that photo for longer than I, I think I have known of you, which I thought was really <laughs> funny. Um, the first time I ever I ever came across your profile on Facebook, I, uh, I, I thought you were just some rando that had that photo. And then I figured <laughs> out at some point later down the line that that was you. And I, I was uh, I definitely fanboyed a little bit. Uh, I'll say that. <laughs> So, um, Adam, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, we are going to be talking about the demographics of gun ownership and the demographics of who owns the, uh, the gun means of production. So, um, yeah, before we start talking about that, I do have a couple of questions for you. So my first one is how would you kind of situate yourself politically and in relation to the means of production uh well i'm a worker uh for sure in the in the relation to the means of production um although the industry i'm in uh is um yeah, because I, I i really i usually work for the government um i'm an archaeological technician so it, the, the biggest employer of archaeologists is the government. Uh, sometimes I work for the Forest Service, sometimes the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, it's all seasonal work. So it, in a way, um, it's the, the means of production for me that I deal with is, is publicly owned as far as it can be with uh, the United States federal government. Um, but yeah, overall, I, I'm definitely a worker. Okay. And... Um... How about kind of where you are politically speaking uh, in the world today? I'm definitely a communist, uh, I, which I, I, I would just say just communist. Um, I, I like the uh, existential comics uh, tweet that's gone around for quite a while that says that uh, I'm a true centrist. I think that both anarchists and uh, Leninists have good points. And that's really the position that I've been in for quite a while now that I think that most leftist tendencies 
make good points and then also make bad points. So I try to take, uh, I try to learn from every one of them and take the good and try to uh, um, ignore the bad really, or at least not uh, take the bad into myself. Uh, so yeah, I'm really just a communist. Okay. I, I can uh, definitely sympathize with that. That's kind of where I myself would describe myself. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have any one tendency necessarily. I think that, again, as you said, there are many good points, uh, good criticisms coming from a lot of different positions within the overall left milieu. And uh, yeah, so generally communist. And uh, I think the key is that pretty much most, if not all of the different tendencies are in support of the abolition of classes. Yes. And creating a classless, stateless society that also doesn't need money. And yep. uh, yeah, so that's kind of where I, I like to start uh, myself and, and navigate the political world. So I know yeah. that. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say is that I think that most tendencies, uh, there's definitely more. We have more in common than than we have uh, opposed to each other. And a lot of the things that we oppose on can there's definitely room for compromise. I think a lot of the conflict that you find between leftist tendencies is uh, silly, really. It's it's childish, it's pointless. Yeah, absolutely. It it comes from being stuck on the internet and not yes. interacting with people in real life. Yep. Awesome. So I know that you have spoken about uh, some of your background on social media and on TikTok. Um, and by background, I'm specifically thinking about your your uh, military experience. Before we explore how your military experience and your other life experiences maybe shaped your political trajectory, um, could you maybe just talk briefly as to like what you did in the military and uh, you know kind of where you were politically before this um, more radical moment in your life? Yeah, um, like most people, I think in, in uh, uh, on the left, I, I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't start a leftist. Uh, I was very much a conservative, although I, I, I really do believe that, uh, like a lot of people say, that most people are communists. They just don't realize it yet, and that was definitely the case for me. Uh, me coming to realize, uh, me becoming a communist was just me realizing that. Communism is all of the things that I always believed in: uh, democracy, uh, equality, uh, making sure that everyone has agency over their own lives. Uh, those have always been the things that I found to be the most important. Uh, and I just didn't realize that the system that I used to support, capitalism, and uh, the United States, uh, doesn't stand for those things, doesn't represent those things, and doesn't embody them. So. I, I first joined the military in 2007, uh, and I was very much, I would call myself a chud. I was, I was not a pleasant person to know. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I joined the military expecting to do that as a career. And as my career in the military went on, I just was exposed to things that made me realize that all of my preconceptions about the United States, about the military, about capitalism, um, are just not true. 
And that really came to a head when I deployed in 2012 to Afghanistan. Uh, when you go to war, the, the cruelty of capitalism and the United States specifically is, is on full display. They don't try to hide it like, like they do here in the United States. Um, over there, they don't care because they don't have to hide it. And nobody's going to listen to you when you get home, <laughs> really, and try to tell them how things are. And so I just I saw the first thing that really started to crack the wall of propaganda between me and realizing that I am a communist was the fact that uh, contractors over there outnumber military personnel almost 10 to 1. And they're all doing jobs that the military not only just still trains people to do, but that were deployed to that same FOB to do. But because the contractors are doing their job for them, they're not doing anything. They're just sitting there. And I realized that the reason behind that is the fact that uh, government officials, you can't invest in the military. It's not, uh, it's not, it's not a business. So in order to make money off of war, they use contractors because you can invest in a contracting company. And because those contracts are awarded by the government officials themselves, they know exactly how much these companies are going to make. So it's, it, there's no gamble at all in that investment. It's insider trading. And that was one of the biggest blows um, to, for me to realize that how cruel capitalism is. I mean, they're making money off of war. But the thing that really broke it down was one moment. And it was, uh, we drove, we, our, our barracks um, were on the south side of the FOB. And our, uh, where we worked, our, our, our flight pad was on the north side. So we had to drive all the way around the base uh, of the outside perimeter to get where we worked every day and then drive it all the way back. And on the outside of that, um, just before uh, we got to our flight pad, there it was an old Soviet minefield. And the United States definitely could have removed that minefield uh, long before I got there. We, by, by the time I deployed, we'd been there for 10 years. So they had ample opportunity. The United States has the personnel with the training and the equipment to get rid of mines like that very quickly and uh, efficiently uh, with very little danger to the engineers. Uh, but that cost a bit more money than they wanted to spend. So what they did instead was to pay the locals for every mine that they brought oh uh, us. Yes. And so the locals, they have no training, they have no equipment, and they're poor as dirt. I mean, you think you've seen poverty in the United States. You have not seen it until you see the poor people of Afghanistan. It's, it is awful. And so they died all the time, uh, all the time from these mines. Um, and that alone is bad enough. But then, uh, and this really drives home how poor they are, um, these people were desperate. And so they would sometimes bring their families with them out to these minefields to help them gather more mines to make more money. We were driving back to the barracks after uh, at the end of one day, and out in the field was this little girl, couldn't have been more than uh, maybe six years old, out in the middle of this minefield. And she runs up and stands on top of a mound and just stares at us driving past. She was fairly close, so I could get a good look at her. And she was covered in head to toe in mud and gore. I couldn't see any 
injuries on her. Um, so I don't think it was her uh, blood. And she had this look in her eye that if anyone else has seen it, they know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not something you can forget. It's 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 hollow and haunting. Uh, she was just dead inside. And uh, everyone saw her and we just kept driving, didn't do anything. Um, and that really just ended it for me. It, it, that was it. it I, the, the cruelty of capitalism is on full display in that moment, and I couldn't deny it anymore. And it was at that moment that I can safely say I was a communist. That is fucking heavy. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, I, I never saw anything like that. My own deployment, uh, I only went on one deployment, and that was to East Africa. And I saw a lot of fucked up stuff, especially as, as far as, um, yeah. you know, when you think about U.S. empire. Uh, the the thing about East Africa is that people don't know, even even in the military, they don't know about that base that's out there and, and the fact that people deploy. And so wow. there isn't as much of a need to, I guess, like dress up the mission in patriotic bullshit or or like, you know, oh, we're here yeah. in, in Afghanistan for this, you know, justification in in East Africa and in other parts of the world where the military is that the public doesn't know about. It's just like, nope, we're here because we're securing economic interests. And that's that's not even a question. That That is like kind of the stated official position of the commands that are there. You know, we are here to secure interests in the region. Wow. That said, I, you know, I saw a lot of a lot of fucked up shit, but nothing to that degree. So I, I, I cannot imagine the the experience of that little girl and whatever trauma she had just been inflicted with by the capitalist you know imperialist machine man that is that is rough yeah. um well that that seems like a pretty clear trajectory you know that that experience you becoming a communist i that that just makes so much sense seeing that and and you know developing as you did from there politically and as far as yeah. your job was concerned, you mentioned a, a flight path or a flight line. You were within the aviation branch of the army, right? I was. I was a, uh, uh, my official title was crew chief, um, but that's kind of a misnomer with the aircraft that we work on. Um, I, I was, I, I actually worked on two different aircraft while I was in the military. I first joined to work on the OH-58s, which on the civilian side is a, a long ranger. So on that one, the crew chief does go fly with the aircraft usually. Um, so I did, I got a lot of flight time in that. But when I deployed, I deployed as a CH-47 mechanic. Right, the, the big double rotor one. Yeah, the Chinook. And so that's what I did in Afghanistan, except I, by that point in time, I was a sergeant. So I was put in charge of a squad of repairers. Um, and it was the, so they split us up into two shifts, a day shift and night shift. And I was in charge of the night shift or sorry, the, the day shift uh, maintenance. Uh, we had about 13 aircraft. And so I had to manage all of that, uh, at least during the daytime. Uh, so I didn't actually get to work on aircraft very often. It was mostly paperwork and uh, and uh, a lot of uh, uh, logistical work. Um, I didn't have an office though, so I was out on the flight line the whole mm -hmm. time doing all this crap. So I, I could safely say I didn't fly a desk, but I wasn't sure. very far okay. from one. 
Yeah, I, I can't make the same claim. I was a first lieutenant on my deployment, and I was definitely in an office environment coordinating like the base security for my uh, my unit. Uh, we were on a Sec Four mission, uh, security forces mission. So okay, that's um, it's good to know. Cool. All right, let's see. So um, man, I'm still thinking about that description of that little girl. That is that is fucking terrible. It took me a long time to even be able to describe that without uh, uh, choking up. It's, uh, yeah, it's been I a bet. long road. Um, yeah, when I was in country, uh, I, I was three days in country, and one of the locals that was employed on the base collapsed and died on the base. And like oh, he was so uh, KBR was one of the companies that was contracting out like the locals to come work. I'm sure yeah. 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 Uh, they did all, that's all the contractors okay. were on our fall was KBR. Every single KBR. job done by KBR. Yeah. So, uh, so this yeah. base that I was on, um, the, uh, there was a, a military, maybe like a field hospital or kind of like a field medical situation. It wasn't very robust. If someone got injured, they would go to, that base and then from there would usually get transported out to like germany or somewhere in europe with with better medical services and <laughs> hospital uh i don't know like accommodations yeah, yeah but the interesting the thing, thing about this situation is this dude died on post and instead of taking him and rendering emergency medical care or attempting to revive him or whatever uh they they like picked him up and they just took him off post. And I have no idea what happened to this dude. Never heard about it again. Never saw the guy again. We're pretty, you know, I am 99.9% .9 certain that the dude died. But beyond that, I have no idea what, you know, what happened with this guy. Yeah, yeah that, that sounds familiar. They really just do not give a flying shit about uh, the locals uh they're they're yes. completely expendable oh yes it's vile and, and that wasn't the only situation there were multiple situations where you know once if something happened the military would deal with it to the extent that the military cared about it which was is this a security risk no okay hand it off to the locals and local government services what have you and never think about it again and that was that was kind of the modus operandi of the whole deployment so wow yeah um ugh, i moving on from that terrible just just the terrible experiences of being in the in the military yeah. so how would you describe your um i guess relationship to firearms and you know what what was the process of accepting them into your life did you grow up with them especially as you mentioned you were on the more conservative side or the chuddier side of things did you start with a position in life that you were uh, okay with guns and open to guns or did you kind of come to that position later on in life oh no i, I was very very much raised in it um my family has uh, been rural workers uh all the way back into antiquity um, and I'm from Montana, uh, so it's it's you know a very strong gun culture. 
Um, though I wasn't raised in it, uh, and that's one area where I think I was fortunate um, because my father, uh, he was in law enforcement. He was a federal cop. So uh, it's, uh, which it's bad, that's bad, uh, but he, uh, he had a different attitude towards firearms than um, a lot of, uh, a lot of conservatives do. It wasn't steeped in, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but it's a mysticism almost that uh, a lot of conservatives regard firearms with. He had a very down to earth um, view of them. And really my grandfather did too. So that's probably more where it came from. But uh, I, I was always around them uh, uh, growing up. And so it was really no big deal, really. It was just a part of life. We had firearms. Uh, we practiced with them a lot. Uh, I, I hunted uh, my whole life growing up. And uh, so they were very much just tools to us. Uh, we, we always had them, we always used them, but uh, it wasn't really a, too big of a deal. So yeah, I was okay. raised in them. And that's that's actually really interesting that you you commented on the uh, maybe mystical kind of aspect or this mystical dynamic to mm -hmm. guns. I've noticed this a lot where on the conservative right, on the reactionary right, and maybe even beyond just the right wing of U.S. politics, there does seem to be this kind of mystical or mystified aspect to guns where it, you know, the gun has this like intrinsic value as... I, I don't know how to describe right. it. Like, it's almost a religious artifact to a lot of these conservatives. And I think, I think uh, if I can go off on a little bit of a tangent, uh, I think it has something to do with the fact that most of them have never practically used them. Uh, the, the most they've ever done is shoot at a range mm -hmm. or uh, go hunting. Uh, but the hunting was just a sport for them. them. And uh, whereas, or... And maybe this is where it came from with my family, our, our approach to firearms. Uh, my grandfather was a teenager during the Great Depression, and uh, he. this is in uh, Sijuoli, Washington, very small mm -hmm. town, especially back then. And they were absolutely poor as dirt. Uh, they lived in a shack with no electricity way back in the woods. They had no money at all. So literally the, the only way they did survive the Great Depression was hunting. Uh, they hunted all year round and that was the primary source of their food. So that, uh, my grandfather used firearms every single day growing up as a tool, uh, he used them practically. So I think that that probably grounded in him a very practical view of firearms. They're just a tool uh, to him. And then of course he passed that on to my father. Uh, my father passed it on to me. And yeah, I think that mysticism comes a lot from just the fact that most conservatives not only are steeped into in, with propaganda from the manufacturing industry, uh, uh, but also just the fact that they've never practically used firearms. They just shoot them for fun. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Um, a lot of those mystified or mystical ideas about guns uh, I've seen somewhat rooted or I'd say somewhat, they, they've been largely rooted in specifically Christian religious ideas about the divine mandate mm -hmm. of uh, Anglo-American settlers to colonize and spread among um, the lands of, the, of North America, yes. of, of what the modern United States is. And um, 
I, th I think as people started settling and developing, uh, you know, first kind of the agrarian settlements and eventually transitioned into uh, more sedentary lifestyles, started urbanizing and then suburbanizing and developing various forms of, I guess, like regional um, development of like cities and settlements and whatever else they got away from the need to use it as a tool of survival, but they still viewed it as being critical yeah. to their, their, um, their narratives about how the world works and their, maybe their like origin stories. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the, uh, the historian Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz talks about this in her book called, uh, what is it? Loaded, a disarming history of the second amendment where she frames gun ownership as uh, part of this like covenant for the settlers and yeah it's it's oh yeah i as i said you're you're hitting the nail on the head i think with your analysis that people who don't really need the guns or other tools of violence in their daily life they end, end up assigning or ascribing this mystical value to it to to really develop a mythology right. about what guns can do for them and, and to suit their political ideas and narratives. So. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's perfect. Yeah. It all ties into manifest destiny really. And, uh, to them, it's still going on because, uh, the native people are still here. And especially right now, uh, with things like line three, and uh, DAPL and all of that um, native concerns are very prominent in the news right now uh, and in the uh, national uh, thought process. And so for them, manifest destiny is still is still uh, an imperative and they need guns oh, yeah, to absolutely. fulfill it. And if you also take a look at the, um, the movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, the, you know, the 2020 yeah. uprising, or rather uprisings because there were multiple across the across the country and a lot of them or most of them were all rooted in this idea of fighting against the oppression of specifically uh black americans or you know black people who the only reason they're even here in the country oftentimes is because their ancestors were enslaved and brought here against their will and then the the police, which yeah. arise out of the slave patrols of the, you know, the 1800s, the, the era of slavery, they are still oppressing, actively oppressing and murdering people in, in black working class communities. And, and black people are facing the brunt of that police violence. Not to say that others aren't facing that as well, but I, as a, as a proportion or as a ratio of the population, they are definitely bearing the brunt so uh that's a that's another good point uh, about their attitude towards firearms is uh is towards black people because it ties back into the the very narrative that uh the confederacy used to get poor white people to fight for them uh there's a really great book i read a number of years ago and i, I don't know if i'm can remember the title exactly, but it was something close to uh, what this cruel war was fought for. And all it was was letters from soldiers uh, during the Civil War uh, from both sides uh, to give a perspective of what they were fighting for. 
And every single one of the letters from Confederate soldiers uh, was always along the lines of, uh, if we these black people get freedom, it's going to be chaos. They, they don't know how to govern themselves. They're violent. So we got to make sure that slavery stays in place to keep them in line. And the, that, even if it's not directly said, that uh, mindset is very much encouraged among white people in this country. And that, uh, and now with uh, Black Lives Matter and all of the uprisings uh, happening in the country, uh, to the white people that have bought into that narrative, they look at the news and they see it verifying that worldview. They look at those uprisings as that chaos, that rioting and violence that black people do because it's just inherent to them. So they got to have their guns to keep the black people down. It's a further mystifying firearm as a, as a religious artifact to, to right. maintain white. Yeah. Supremacy. At the end of the day, it's all used to uphold white supremacy, which itself is one of the, the foundational pillars of capitalism. And yeah, and it's, it's mm -hmm. used against uh, black folks, new African folks. It's used against anyone who has brown skin, whether they're perceived to be from uh, Central and South America. You know, that's my own background. I am Latin American. And um, Trump really kind of played up these ideas about Mexicans or immigrants being rapists and criminals and murdering everyone left and right and and right. you know not just mexicans but really any any brown immigrant and and then yeah you you see the anti-asian hate that has been really prevalent especially with covid oh, and yeah. trump playing up the idea of covid being uh, some sort of uh chinese virus and then and then you see a lot of yeah. uh, a lot of crossover um, there have been many stories of of Latin American people who are, you know, indigenous people. A lot of us have some amount of indigenousness in our in our ancestry, and and we have kind of the the features that might indicate that we have that in, indigenous background. And then uh, I I can't remember the exact details of the story, but there was a woman who was from somewhere in Latin America or Central America. And uh, she was attacked because someone thought that she was Asian. And I know that in the Philippines, for example, a lot of people from the Philippines, as a remnant of colonialism, have Spanish sounding names. And they, you know, they also have, I guess, features that for many people, specifically white people, they, they can't tell the difference between somebody that maybe comes from Asia, Eastern Asia, Southeast Asia, and someone that comes from Central and South America and has indigenous features from there. And so all, you know, at the right. end of the day, white supremacist racism and nat nativism leads to violence against all of these people using firearms and using other tools of, of violence. Because again, the, they're trying to uphold white supremacy and they're trying to uphold uh, capitalism and their way of life. So yeah, I, I think right. a lot of a lot of mysticism arises from those. I I don't think that the practical use of firearms necessarily renders one safe from falling into those other nativist ideas. But I oh, think no, at least as far as the origin of 
of those ideas, um, it's at least less likely to to impact those who use guns practically because they're not just sitting in like, you know, sitting at home, living their comfortable life and defending guns or some sort of ide ideological tool. Well, that, my, my father's a perfect example of that, that, uh, that having a practical view of firearms has, doesn't stop you from uh, upholding the racist uh, 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 caricatures uh, because he definitely being in law enforcement, he is steeped in it uh, and uh, expresses them very often. Uh, it's, uh, it's a big yeah, point of contention uh, between us. Not at all surprising, given what we uh, we tend to know about cops, which is that they're all racist pieces of shit. Yeah. So yes. I think this is a good opportunity to start transitioning to a discussion on the demographics of firearms and specifically who owns them. Um, you know, we've been talking a little bit about some some different types of people that might own guns and kind of what those guns mean to them. So let me ask you this. When you when you think about maybe what the predominant narratives or stereotypes are about gun ownership, what what immediately comes to mind? If I say I want you to picture a gun owner and describe that person to me, what would you think? I think it uh, it definitely is um, very much the, the normal uh, uh, view that that most people think of, uh, where you know they're conservative, they're very loud and opinionated, and basically their entire personality revolves around guns. Uh, that's the t uh, when I when I hear the word gun owner, that's what I think of. Uh, they have a very large ar arsenal, and yeah, the only personality they have is is that they own guns. That's the typical yeah, absolutely. That's that's my my first thought, and I say this as someone who, mm -hmm. again, I I work in the industry now, and I I know how maybe those predominant narrative, uh, excuse me, narratives aren't necessarily the truth, but they are stereotypes for a reason. Absolutely. I think probably because right. the the people who are a little louder or more opinionated, excuse me, opinionated about gun ownership and using guns to achieve whatever, whether it's political means or excuse me, political ends or practical ends, what, whatever those might be, they're still going to be the loudest. The industry very much caters to them too. Uh, that's the demographic that they seem to want to sell to. You really don't see them uh, advertising uh, towards uh, uh, selling to non-white, non-conservative people. Uh, it's it's very strange because uh, that caricature is definitely the, the thing that most people um, the, pops into their mind when you say gun owner. But the reality of gun ownership in America is probably far more diverse. I, I certainly don't have statistics in front of me, but uh, I really feel it's or even there's plenty of non-white people owning guns, uh, at least at least as many as white people. Um, and definitely, uh, there's definitely a lot of uh, even liberals that own guns. Um, so it's 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 a very purposeful that people have that picture of a gun owner when in their mind. I think it's it's yeah, I I definitely think so. I think there is a political dynamic to it where uh, the liberal so-called elites will come in and they will create a narrative that it's specifically uh, you know, poor white people who are 
uneducated and you know not the most <laughs> cosmopolitan of of demographics and they they attempt to cast gun ownership as the activity of yokels and they they utilize that yeah. narrative to discourage those more cosmopolitan uh, more cosmopolitan types the more educated people out there uh, they they use it to create this idea that gun ownership is itself bad and is the ignorant position and therefore you should sacrifice guns or give up guns if you want to be more worldly and you want to be smarter and better and whatever else they might you know kind of throw in with that well i think it also goes to the demographics of what the two political sides are uh, catering to or trying to attract i should say uh, uh, which is based on their um the regions that they draw power from uh liberals are primarily uh from urban areas uh where that have a lot of gun violence and so for them they uh they 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 want to paint gun owners in that image of uh which is the polar opposite of what they are like you said these dumb uh, ur uh rural poor white yokels uh that are just really loud and they don't need guns uh and and uh so, yeah, that, that's what they're the caricature for them serves their interests because it's it gives them uh, an other to to vilify uh, and stir up their base. And then but that caricature serves the interests of conservatives as well, because they have created a culture that idolizes that caricature. Uh, uh, and it, I mean, look at. The, the Larry the Cable Guy kind of thing. I remember when he was just immensely popular among cons uh, conservatives because he embodied, uh, or at least the character embodied, everything that they had now uh, created uh, as an ideal conservative. And so both sides use the, <laughs> the same caricature, one as an enemy and the other as yeah. uh, the ideal. And the power base that conservatives uh, draw from is not even that kind of rural conservative. It's the it's suburban conservatives. It's still from urban right. areas, but the outskirts. And because those suburbanites have now created, since that is their ideal, they create in their minds that they are somehow this rural uh, uh, redneck uh, when they're not. It's just it's really fascinating. Uh, to me yeah no, you uh, brought up some really good subject. points and i would certainly like to circle back on those um especially about kind of the class analysis behind a lot of these ideas of who owns guns so i'm going to read a little bit uh about gun demographics this is going to be based on some of my research um i'll just go ahead and i'll jump right into it so according to the pew research center report on the demographics of gun ownership which was published in 2017. That was the, uh, the most recent one that I could find. About 30% of all adults personally own a gun. Gun ownership varies wow. considerably across demographic groups. And th this is a quote from that article. For example, about 4 in 10 men, 39%, say that they personally own a gun, compared with 22% of women. And while 36% of whites report that they are gun owners, about a quarter of blacks, 24%, and 15% of Hispanics say that they own a gun. 
white men are especially likely to be gun owners. About half, 48%, say that they own a gun, compared with about a quarter of white women and non-white men, 24% each, and 16% of non-white women. And so um, I think that these demographics mesh pretty well with that public perception or those stereotypes about gun ownership. And really, that that main perception is that gun ownership is a thing that white men do. Um, you know, of course, there is some diversity in there, maybe more than uh, some people might expect, but it's still primarily a phenomenon of white white men, you know, owning guns and using guns. Well, I, you know, I wonder about that. Um, I wonder that uh, if the reporting, because it's it's all self-reporting. Uh, the reporting among non-whites is, I wonder if it's lower than what the actual ownership is, because um, non-white people, it, it, it's 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 something they know even better than we do that it's dangerous for them to have guns. Uh, they, it's not something that they can usually advertise because. Uh, white people will immediately see them as a threat, even if they're not being threatening. Uh, I mean, it's something you, uh, you see all the time, cops shooting no, a non-white person just because they had a gun, even if it wasn't drawn, even if it wasn't even near them. Um, so, uh, and then of course, there's the case of the Black Panthers. Uh, these are armed black people. And all of a sudden, as soon as they start advertising that they are armed, now conservatives want to pass uh, gun control in California. And uh, so I really think that a lot of non-white people when asked, do you own guns, say no, even when they do, because they don't feel that it's safe for them to confirm yeah, that they absolutely. do own guns. And I, I don't know necessarily if, if that is a dynamic within this, uh, this research. So um, if I remember correctly, the way that the Pew Research Center did this, they got a random sap, uh, random sampling of people. They ended up calling like a thousand people, and of the respondents, you know, this is these were the answers that they got. And they do this every every like two or three years. So uh, the statistics show similar trends from the 2015 report. And um, I attempted to find a report that maybe came from like 2019 from Pew Research Center, and I did not find anything. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, but maybe on that day, my Google skills were not up to par. Um, but again, the key is that they, uh, the patterns overall are pretty similar, despite the specific statistics of any given sample size. And... Um, I actually right. found some information from a Gallup report, and that was from 2019, and it it showed pretty similar statistics to that Pew report from 2017. Um, yeah, I think that's I, I doubt it would change yeah, too much. And, just uh, two years. Some some interesting things from the Gallup report. There were actually some political divides to the gun ownership. So um, let me talk about those real quick, and then uh, we have some regional uh, statistics on the demographics, uh, urban slash suburban divides. So yeah, I'll, uh, I'll continue on and then um, let's talk about what, what these mean. So a Gallup report from 2019 showed that there is very much a political divide to gun ownership, 
big surprise on a political spectrum yeah. of conservative to moderate to liberal 45 percent of conservatives reported owning a gun compared to only 30 percent of moderates and 15 percent of liberals this is pretty close to that 2017 pew report which i uh, referenced earlier and um that showed partisan affiliations it was highlighting how among republicans 41 percent of the respondents that identified as republicans had guns just 16 percent of democrats had guns and then 36 percent of independents uh, reported any sort of gun ownership um and really all of this kind of confirms what my own experiences have shown me and I don't necessarily want to speak for you, but I would, I would be willing to bet money on the fact that it's probably pretty similar to what you've seen, which is that it's primarily conservative in nature. Oh yeah, and that, in that liberals or Democrats oh, tend to be so. against gun ownership. So, yeah, yeah, very um, much so. And then let's see uh, some other interesting facts about gun ownership based on these, uh, these demographic statistics so there's a lot of variability in regional ownership the south the midwest and the west all had gun ownership rates among respondents at 36 percent 32 percent and 31 percent respectively the northeast was down at just 16 percent um so in my view i would say that this is probably driven by, in especially in the Northeast, a lot of the more democratic-run or liberally-run governments, they they tend to have higher levels of gun yeah. control. I'm kind of surprised that Vermont didn't skew the Northeast a little bit higher. From what I understand, I've never really spent any significant amount of time in Vermont, but they have a pretty high rate there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Anyway. Um, I, I was actually kind of surprised at that as well, uh, between Vermont and I think New Hampshire, those are both fairly uh, libertarian, if you will, uh, when it comes to like individual right, yeah. rights and gun ownership and and similar stuff. Um, but like in the Northeast, if we think about which states make up the Northeast, we have New York, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. Those all have pretty yeah. pretty robust gun restrictions. And uh, Maryland, I know some people consider Maryland part of the South. Some people consider it part of the North. It probably depends on whether or not you'd fly a U.S. flag <laughs> or a Confederate flag. Um, uh, I know Maryland yeah. has some restrictions on, at least on like AR-15s, um, if if nothing else. That's that's kind of the extent of my knowledge on on those gun restrictions, and, and they they restrict gun types as well, well as uh, magazine capacities. And Maryland has a lot of pressure uh, from the federal government in that regard, or at least uh, D.C. Uh, anyway, because it's smack yeah. dab in the middle of Maryland. So they kind of put pressure on them to have gun laws that are similar Oh, yeah, 100 percent. And the other thing is that no one can afford to live in D.C. except for very select people. So guess where the people that work in D.C. Right. end up living? They live in the suburbs of Maryland and Virginia. Yep. So um, I'm sure, I'm sure that that certainly has an impact. And then let's see. So on the the rural, suburban, and urban divide, we see gun ownership being a 
primarily rural phenomenon. 46% of rural residents reported ownership compared to 28% in the suburbs and just 19% in urban areas. And then um, this, this one's really interesting. So gun ownership is pretty much for everyone except for the financially insecure. The variation by income Right. Uh, let's see. We have $100,000 or more in annual income. Saw 38% gun ownership. $40,000 to $100,000 saw 34% ownership. And those who make less than $40,000 reported a 25% ownership rate. But I actually saw in another source, and I'll, I'll have to find it again and probably just post it in like the show notes. Um, basically, people who were making less than 25000 or about the federal poverty line did not report on any gun ownership, which really that stood out to me because that pretty clearly starts creating the, the picture that this is a class issue, not necessarily a race issue. Yeah. And then when we look at the education levels of gun owners, uh, this also lends more of a look into how this is class-based. Um, so we have uh, yeah. education levels, high school or less was 31% ownership, some college, which I believe they defined as having attended college, but not having achieved a bachelor's degree was 34%. Oh. Bachelor's degree or higher was 25%. Um, that's oh, that's unusual. I would expect it to go up after you get your bachelor's because you're poorest yeah, while you're in college. I, I don't know how so to parse that one. Um, I don't I don't want to partake in yeah. the classist narrative that higher education creates necessarily smarter people that don't feel like they need tools of violence. Um, Actually, that's a good that that makes it make a little more sense. And uh, you, you don't have to start paying your student loans until you get out of college. Which makes you poorer than you when you were in college. I didn't have to deal with student loans, be military, so I, right. I, I yeah. And forget I think another that. thing is that when you look at who is paying student loans, it's probably not going to be the people that, you know, maybe their families have generational wealth, and um, right. Maybe they don't necessarily need to achieve a higher level of education because they already have. The, the fortune available to them or they're going to take over the family business or or whatever and so maybe there's not so much of a need for those types of people to achieve really highly in school and they can they can hit their you know some college maybe get like an associate's or a bachelor's degree and then and then go and yeah. take over their job and they can be completely mediocre in their role but they at least have like guaranteed work so, yeah. um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just, I, I know a lot of people frame it. Oh, well, if, as you can see people with bachelor's degrees or PhDs or whatever, they don't own guns as often, which means that they're smarter. So smarter people therefore don't need, <laughs> don't need to have right. guns. They don't, you know, they don't feel the need to partake in a, or participate in a violent society. And like, you know, I don't, maybe yeah. there's something to education that that kind of develops out of that education process because our education process largely supports a neoliberal conception of the world and and yeah. I, I don't know how 
neoliberalism as a whole would necessarily view individual gun ownership because i don't know maybe individual gun ownership could be an obstacle to uh free markets rising up and that's why they rely on militaries and police to uphold you know private property and the rights of the rights of the bourgeois or the bourgeoisie against the proletariat so um yeah i this one this one's a little tricky it's it's kind of hard to say whether because of higher education people have different values about the role of violence than people with less education but like if you think about it when you look at when you look in government the people who are highly educated or, or they're educated in elite institutions like harvard yale princeton all the you know I, the ivy leagues and all the other premier prestigious schools these are the same people that then go to work at the pentagon and, the, and they go and work at other government institutions and they support warfare and they support using violence to achieve wealth right for the country and then individually so like all these ivy league educated people go on to work in the government and then after the government they get really cushy jobs in corporate america and they support military interventions to achieve uh, economic um, security economic and, and support the economic interests of the united states and other western nations that um, undertake in you know capitalism abroad i uh I think it probably has more to do with uh, economic um, status of, of a person, uh, or you know, their income, because uh, most people that go to college um, are not rich. They don't have a family they can rely on to pay off their student loans for them. Uh, most of them are just regular people that you know, are doing what they were taught to do, saying, oh, you want to get you want to get a good paying job you got to have a college degree so they go to college they get all these massive student loans and uh then they get out of college and find out that's not the case at all um and uh, like i said most of you since you don't have to start paying your student loans until after you get out of college i think i think it's safe to say i don't have any statistics to back up this claim but uh i think it's safe to say that most people are poorer when they get out of college than while they were in college. Um, and so I think that's probably at least uh, partially why people, once they've gone through college, uh, have are a lower rate of firearms ownership. Because uh, I know it, it, when I was, my, the, the amount of guns that I owned uh, went down while I, when I was at my poorest, because uh, you, gotta, you gotta eat. And sometimes that means hawking a gun so uh, uh the only reason i even owned any firearms when i was poor uh was because uh the, the ones that i had left were legacy firearms uh my my great great grandfather's shotgun a bolt action rifle it was uh, given to me as a gift when i was 18 that kind of stuff stuff that you just i cannot sell uh i did i the only gun that i owned uh when i was poor that i could have sold but didn't was uh, a revolver and just so I had something uh, that would to use for self-defense or whatever, even if it is pretty shitty for it. Um, so I just based on my personal experience, it's seen that looking at it from that perspective makes sense. And I, I yeah. could be totally wrong. No, that, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And um, 
especially I know that I, I myself, I looked at trying to pursue higher education and, you know, go get a master's or a PhD and work in academia. There, there's no money to be had in a lot of, in a lot of academia or, you know, after you've achieved a master's degree or even a doctorate within your field. So my background is political science and, you know, you go, you get a PhD in political science. Maybe you can find a way to make a lot of money working for some shitty like think tank, I guess, and do research that supports their, their ideas <laughs> and their narratives. But if you go to work in academia, you're probably going to get a job as an adjunct uh, professor or lecturer at a community college, and you're going to get paid a couple thousand dollars for the entire semester per class that you teach, and you're going to be poor shit. So, yeah, yeah, there's there's not it's not like there's necessarily money in higher educational achievements. So I think you're right. I think the income level is is a yeah. more important factor here, and that collegiate achievement or or educational achievement is not necessarily going to be a good indicator here um another interesting fact oh this one's good so um among respondents who had a veteran's status 44 percent of veterans owned firearms and so military service is one of the strongest predictors of gun ownership um i say it's interesting i don't think it's yeah. a surprise at all i i think that yeah. when you join the military you you get this indoctrination into a, a culture of you know guns are a part of life unless unless you're in the navy or the coast guard yeah. because they don't touch guns really other than you know if it's very specifically your job but like if if you were in the marines you were in the army and i can't speak to air force because i don't know anything about the air force but at least between those two services, which I think the the preponderance of veterans are going to come from either the Marines or the Army. You know, I wonder. I I don't know if there's any statistics to to that have looked into this, but I wonder what the rate of ownership is between uh, amongst mili military and former military personnel about, uh, between people who deployed and people who never deployed. So I'd be willing to bet it's higher amongst the deployed, the people who have hmm. deployed, because um, it, it's it's like I, for myself, I never uh, carried a, a firearm regularly until after I deployed, and it, it wasn't it's not a PTSD thing. Um, I was never in combat, it, but it's you just grow used to it uh, because I, we were in a combat zone. And so we had to have our rifle on us at all times. We had to eat with it in our lap uh, and you just get used to that. And I felt so weird when I got back to the States and I didn't have a gun on me at all times anymore. I wasn't afraid. I didn't think I was ever going to use it. It was just strange. It's, it's, uh, it's, it, you feel naked. So I'd be willing to bet it's higher amongst people that deployed, especially people who've seen combat, because they actually do. I know a lot of uh, a lot of them that do have P, uh, experience PTSD um, when they don't have a gun, because they're just afraid uh, that they would need to defend themselves. They've gotten used to that point, uh, being able to defend themselves with a gun at a moment's notice, and all of a sudden they can't do that. So they, the, those people go get guns and they get concealed carry permits and they carry them. Yeah, on at all no, times. I, that's, that's actually a really good question. I think 
that if if that research doesn't exist already, which I certainly did not come across it, it, it would be interesting to see what that actually reveals. Um, I know myself, I, you know, my, yeah. my own background was in the combat arms. I started out in the infantry and then I eventually went into the field artillery as an officer. And so from, you know, getting trained to have a gun on you at all times in the infantry and like, you're, you're carrying everything you need to survive on your back. And I, I started out in a light infantry unit. So we walked everywhere. And uh, when I deployed, it was with a light infantry unit. And we were in a combat zone. We didn't directly see combat. Uh, there were a few instances in which it certainly came close. Uh, you know, without going into the details or the specifics of those situations, it certainly came close. Um, and uh, every time, every time I went outside of the wire, you know, it was with body armor and at least, at least like a basic yeah. combat load of ammunition on me, if nothing else. So, like there, again, in a combat zone, there was always the expectation or the or the possibility that it happened. Um, and yeah. uh, you know, I'm I'm fortunate that I never had to fire my weapon at the behest of the uh, the imperialist war machine at somebody that lives in the third yeah. world or in the global south. I'm I'm very pleased to say that I never had to do that myself. But um, I I still my you know I myself had this idea that like you know if if I leave home if I leave the wire and I don't have a firearm on me I feel naked and I'm not necessarily equipped yeah. to deal with all threats that might arise, even, even though statistically speaking, yeah. carrying a gun in the, it, at home in the United States, you are probably never going to use it. Um, but, but there's right. still that dynamic of like, well, yeah. I was trained, you know, my decade of military experience taught me that you have to have a freaking gun on you. And if you don't, then you're wrong. <laughs> it's a conflict between uh, your logical right. self and your emotional self. Your logical self knows you're never going to use that gun, but your emotional self just something feels wrong with it when you when you if, if you when you don't have it on you, yeah, or at least near you. Ab absolutely, it's annoying. <laughs> so yeah, so so we've talked about um, veteran status. We've talked about education, uh, income level, which is usually a solid indication of class. Not necessarily, but it's it's usually pretty reliable. Um, and then we've talked about the rural divide, the rural-urban divide, uh, the regional divide in the United States. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot to parse here, and I'm not even done with all of the statistics. But I think maybe some of these ideas really explore, or they deserve more exploration before we move on. So okay, yeah. so we we talked about how gun ownership is primarily a conservative phenomenon, um, and then it's primarily <laughs> white gun owners so of course i i think it's safe to say that when when we start crossing over between these demographic uh profiles white and conservative that those are like the two largest groups and they, they mesh well like the largest group of conservatives is whites and conversely the largest group of whites yep. are conservatives politically speaking so like if yeah. we if we kind of tie in that discussion about the mysticism or the the mystified conception of guns as these tools of violence and um upholding white supremacy and and whatever else like i i think the demographics kind of speak for themselves in that 
th this is truly a phenomenon that is measurable. Um, if that if that makes sense. Oh yeah. And Very like if, if you look at the the urban and rural divide, when you look at who lives in the cities, cities are where a lot of um, a lot of non-white groups are going to be concentrated. For various reasons, you know, they end up getting concentrated in oftentimes in the, the lower income, uh, lower socioeconomic class parts of the city. I don't know. Do you have any commentary to kind of add on to that that idea of like what? Uh, so white conservative gun ownership, which is primarily rural. I th I think it's safe to say, in the rural United States, you have higher levels of conservative political orientation in alignment. So, and it's, that's definitely the, 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 it's a spiritual heartland of gun ownership. Uh, uh, it, it is definitely, according to the statistics that you've read off, the majority of gun ownership is rural. Um, and it is definitely the spiritual um, heartland of that culture uh, because of the, the ideal conservative that um, the Republican Party and other conservative organizations have put forward is the rural conservative, even though that's not representative of most conservatives, but it is the kind of conservative that they all strive to embody. Um, but uh, it, it, it's what I find most interesting about that is if, if that's a very recent phenomenon. Um, and I think that the creation of that mystified culture around the gun uh, laid into flipping that narrative because a uh, hundred years ago, rural people were uh, not primarily conservative. The, uh, many of them were very leftist. Uh, they, I mean, that all of the, the most prominent labor movements in the United States were in rural areas, especially coal mines yeah. or mines in general. Um, like back home in Montana, uh, Butte, uh, which is the, the biggest mine town in the state, was uh, uh, was at the for oh a good 50, 50 to eighty years was an epicenter of leftist uh, activity. Um, the, the, I mean, there's even a martyr. I can't remember his name at the moment, uh, but he was an or, uh, an organizer for the, uh, the 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 Wobblies, and he was murdered in Butte, and he's still buried there. And his funeral, funeral, if I remember right, uh, there there were something around ten thousand uh, uh, people in attendance after uh, after that. And now Butte is is this enormously conservative town, and that it's it's it seems to coincide that that shift seems to coincide with this creation of this mystified gun culture because, like I pointed out with my grandfather. Uh, in, the, in the early part of the century, that culture didn't really exist, not to the degree that it does now. Guns were still right. mostly just tools. Um, and, but as, but they were important tools. Um, I think that maybe that culture developed as there began to be movements towards um, regulating gun ownership. And because they were important tools uh, to those people, they began to develop this mystified culture around them, especially as they moved away from using them in their daily lives. Uh, it's a it's a very evolutionary process, but I don't know how, to what degree it was intentional. 
Um, it, 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 I think that the NRA, NRA definitely drove a lot of it, and you don't really see them behaving as they do now until around the 60s when, surprisingly, uh, black people started to arm themselves uh, prominently. And then the NRA had to shift uh, into conservatism. So it probably had a lot to do with the civil rights movement. And then uh, for some reason, conservatives rallied around fire firearms as their primary um, uh, religious artifact to, uh, to, to build their conservatism around. And like we touched on earlier, it, that probably has a lot to do with um, uh, white, well, definitely has a lot to do with white supremacy and manifest destiny. So they just saw, oh, the the, the non-white people are getting uppity. So we got to arm ourselves. We got to make sure we can defend yep. ourselves against them. Um, yeah, it's 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 really strange. I I definitely I definitely agree with that. Um, it's it's this combination of guns being viewed as a as you said a religious artifact and and taking a position within the cultural the, the socio-cultural consciousness of um settler colonists that were you know primarily uh anglo in origin you know the anglo-american um groups and, and of course other european groups as well but ultimately european white groups that came and settled the lands and enslaved millions of black people and conducted genocide against the natives. Like it's, it's, I think ultimately it, it traces back to the original purpose of firearms in the United States, which back to that, that book from Roxanne yeah. Dunbar Ortiz, uh, her first chapter, if, if I remember correctly, specifically traces the racist foundations of the second amendment. So like not, not just gun control was racist, but even the institution of the Second Amendment and all of the the laws and other codified rules or whatever surrounding firearms were specifically about excluding uh, excluding uh, enslaved people, excluding black people, uh, excuse me, black people yeah. from owning guns, and requiring uh, able-bodied white men specifically to have guns in their possession at all times and carry guns openly to prevent the uprisings of the enslaved and to prevent um, incursions of the indigenous peoples that were trying to take back their land or fight back or yep. whatever. Everybody likes to uphold that part, especially liberals. They, they point to the part that says a well-regulated militia, but nobody thinks about what was that well-regulated militia for? What do you need a militia for when you have a standing military? It was it was for subjugating oh, yeah. non-white and, and the the original conception of militia was not, you know, the, the way we conceive of it today, the National Guard being that well-regulated militia. Instead, it was you have Jamestown settlement or or whatever settlement, and you take all of the white men from age, I don't know, 16 to how however old people got at the time. Uh, like maybe 30s before they were like no no good anymore i don't know but basically you, you take people from the time that they are yeah. big enough to carry a rifle or a pistol or whatever and you say okay you are now legally required 
upon pain of imprisonment or fine or whatever, you're going to carry a gun and you're going to use it to prevent the the Africans that we stole and enslaved from rising up. And you're going to prevent the indigenous people that we are currently in the process of committing genocide against from being able to fight back. That is the only reason you are to carry a gun. And uh, by the way, uh, black people and indigenous people cannot have guns. And like that's that's been a constant thing, even in the more modern era, in the early 1900s, there were laws that explicitly barred black people from owning guns, even though they were no longer enslaved under the formal institution of slavery. They were still barred from owning firearms because the Klan wanted to be able to murder and lynch people however they wanted without the risk of uh, getting killed. And when, you know, guns were openly accessible to everyone, and even when they weren't, uh, black people and, and other oppressed communities would still rise up and and shoot back and fight fight back against their oppression. Yeah, it's uh, in fact, uh, going back to the National Guard, um, a lot of people don't know the origins of it, and it's actually the oldest military organization in North America. It was founded in, um, give me one second, I gotta, I can never remember these off the top of my head, I gotta Google it here. Uh, 1636. Oh, where is it here? Oh, no so I, I think it's the Massachusetts it. National Guard you're thinking of, right? Yeah, uh, which led to the nationalized well, National Guard later. Um, yeah, let's see, Jamestown and Plymouth, 1620. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name. It, it, it was formed in order to suppress a native uprising, and I'm trying to remember the name of the uprising. Um, or something like Prince John's War or something like that. I found the name of the uprising uh, that I was looking for. It was the uh, Pequot War of uh, 1636 to 1638. That's what uh, the first National Guard unit was formed uh, in Massachusetts uh, to, to uh, suppress uh, the, uh, one of the earliest native uprisings. So from the very start, militias in this country, uh, their entire purpose was to oppress non-white yep, people. That sounds about right. So when the, when the Second Amendment says uh, a, a well-regulated militia, that's why it says it there. Uh, you don't need a, a militia for uh, national defense when you have a standing army. But if you want to suppress uh, natives and black uh, black people, you do need a militia. Oh, yes, 100%. So that's what it was for. Yeah, if you look at the earliest laws of like the Virginia Commonwealth and um, I think Jamestown Settlement, some others, and this is all again from that uh, history book I mentioned, Loaded. Um, some of the earliest codified like rules for those colonies and, and settlements were specifically uh you are going to carry a gun to shoot a uh, shoot back against the indigenous people and against any enslaved people that try to fight back and that was it and they were very open about it and, and nowadays we see this rhetoric where it's like oh you know the second amendment is apolitical and doesn't doesn't care about race everyone's supposed to have access to it and it's like well if you if you look at the history of the second amendment and if you look at the history of gun control and, and the way those intersect, really, you'll see that guns were specifically a tool of upholding 
the white settler colonial project. Right. Yeah. There's always been gun control in this country for, it's just that up until very recently, the gun control was exclusively uh, right. for non-white people to keep yep. guns out of their hands. I mean, from the very beginning, the uh, uh, the laws were different between uh, white people and non-white people. I mean, it's a, the, one of the very first things is that they like to uphold is the Declaration of Independence, where it says that all men are created equal. And, you know, yeah, people, well, they had slaves at the time. So from the very beginning, the law was not the same. And that's no different for uh, for the right, yeah. quote unquote, to bear arms. It, uh, if they worded that for how it was actually enforced and still is for the most part, it, sh it is uh, that white people have the right to bear arms yeah, and uh, non-white exactly. people don't. And, uh, and also specifically uh, the landed gentry among white people. And at least in more yes. modern uh, times, you know, if, if you're poor, you know, there, there is a lot of racialized, um, there's a racialized component to whether or not you can own guns. And, you know, if you are a poor white person, you're still more able to have guns than even if you were a well-off black person or, or brown person. But if you look within whiteness, if you are a poor white person, you're still probably going to get shot more than, you know, the rich white person who is never going to have the cops called on them. Oh, absolutely. And I wonder if um, the reason why gun ownership is, uh, uh, well, the reason why gun ownership is lower in cities is, uh, you know, for starters, their legal purposes. Most cities have stricter gun control laws. Uh, and then also because there's a culture of, uh, in cities of, of, shunning gun ownership uh, and I, I wonder if to at least some degree the reason for that that existing is because after um, uh, the uh, the ending of slavery uh, and, and the black people were just sort of cut loose without any kind of reparations so that caused them in addition to being oppressed by uh, white militias, such as the KKK, that caused a, uh, black people to flee the South. And they went to the only place where they really could, which was cities, because uh, it was the only place where they could get any kind of work to survive. And I wonder if that played a role in, um, in that, it, it, with guns, gun ownership being lower in cities and there being a culture because they wanted to make sure that black people didn't have guns. So then they started regulating gun ownership far more heavily in urban areas um, and creating this culture shunning gun ownership. I, I, I have nothing to back up uh, that kind of line of thinking, but I, I, I can't help but feel like I, there's I think you're absolutely right. Um, I'm actually going to Google the size of the NYPD real quick, and I, I have a reason for that. NYPD oh, yeah. size. Okay, so uh, from... A website that is, I guess, the official website for NYPD. Um, the New York City Police Department is the largest and one of the oldest municipal police departments in the United States with approximately 36,000 officers and 19,000 civilian employees. Wow. 
for more insight into the demographics of the department, please see recent demographics here. So without looking at those uh, further demographics or whatever you want to call them, 36,000 police means that. So so this is not an issue of of New York not allowing guns in the city. This is an issue of who gets to have the guns. And it's the cops. The cops are effectively a standing military. Right. Or, or paramilitary. Yes. And it's, I think, I think it's worth pointing out that that number, 36,000, is way higher than uh, the amount of troops we ever deployed to Iraq. I don't think that we had ever reached that high. It, it, it just trying to recall from the top of my head. I, yeah, I really I'll, I'll have to look into that to see, at, even at the surge, what, what those numbers were. But um, no, it, yeah, it's, that's a lot of cops, and I mean the the city. If I if I recall at the top of my head, it's like nine million people plus in the city, um, but still thirty six thousand cops. That is that is at a minimum thirty six thousand pistols on the streets of New York. You know, without considering any service rifles and other other big guns that they have. Yeah. So like, New York isn't necessarily anti gun. They just are against. Uh, people of New York having guns, which is probably going to be, you know, the, the majority of New Yorkers are not going to be wealthy. They're going to be working class people. They're going to be immigrants. They're going to be, um, you know, probably lower income. And, uh, and, and then, okay, so I opened up that demographics link and within the police department, 27%, uh, 27.9% uh, white, 75 Two percent white detective. That's a weird distinction. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm misreading yeah. these things. Okay, so the overall white demographic is the largest square on this representation. Um, of all white officers, there's 27 percent that are just like beat cops. 7.5 percent that are detectives. 6.2 percent or 6.3 percent that are sergeants. And then, like, yeah, but it's still ridiculous how 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 many white people there are in NYPD compared to Black, Hispanic, and so on and so forth. Um, I, it's not very clear what the overall percentages are. Uh, oh, here we are. <clears throat> NYPD members of service demographics: forty-five point seven percent white, point one percent Native American, twenty-nine point six percent Hispanic. 15.2% black, 9.4% Asian, total number 34,748 uniform officers. So um, that's in a city uh, of 8,336,817 8, people, according to this website. And that's uh, the composition of those demographics, 32.1% white, 0.4% native, 29.1% Hispanic, 24.3% Black, and 13.9% Asian. So NYPD makes up a higher proportion of the police force, uh, or excuse me, white people as cops make up a higher proportion of the police force than they do the overall population of New York City. So yeah, that's that's pretty telling, I would say. So again, you have you have white gun ownership that is you know, used specifically in New York to 
criminalize black and brown people and conduct illegal and unconstitutional uh, police practices against them, or at least until recently they did with the stop and frisk uh, programs and policies that they had. So were you going to say something? Yeah. Um, I just found the statistics for troops in Afghanistan or in Iraq, and I was I was wrong. At the height of the surge, there was 125,000 there. Um, I did pull up the statistics of Afghanistan, though, uh, and the the highest amount of troops that were ever in Afghanistan at a at a single time was uh, just over 100,000. Um, typically, uh, Afghanistan, the amount of troops that we had in there was. Uh, only a little over 10,000. Um, so at most points during the uh, Afghanistan war, there were more police in New York City than there were soldiers, US soldiers in Afghanistan. I just, it, uh, that yeah. I find pretty telling too, especially given the, the um, demographics of it. I mean, it seems pretty clear that the NYPD is a white military force there to subjugate the black population of Absolutely. New York. And uh, honestly, I should probably do a whole episode dedicated to NYPD, a whole episode dedicated to LAPD, and then eventually um, Chicago PD yeah. as well, especially since of those three, let's see, Chicago PD uh, was known for operating literal black sites. And then LAPD is known for oh, just God. having murder squads and, and executioner squads. And um, I don't think I know of anything specifically within New York uh, Police Department. I'm sure they've done all of it, but um, I, nothing comes to mind as any sort of big like controversy, other than just being known for being like super racist and doing stop and frisk, and um, yeah. and also having they had racial quotas that some officers came out and spoke up about. Yeah. I, yeah, really. This is a topic for another before. another episode, but I yeah, I'll look those up and I'll I'll send this to you and post those in the show notes as well since we talked about it. So, um so yeah, uh, ultimately, I I think that there's there's just so much to gun ownership. Um and, and here's kind of my my overall analysis. So when we consider where in the country, the south, the northeast, the west, what have you, when you consider if it's a rural phenomenon or an urban thing, when you look at the income, you look at the class, uh, here's, here's my analysis. It is pretty clear that it's a class issue. Um, class is not merely indicative of likelihood to own a gun. Uh, what I'm saying is that class drives gun ownership. Uh, my, my use of class here is specifically including the intersections of race and gender based on these statistics. And I think so far we haven't really given a good treatment of the gender aspect, which is it's primarily male dominated or man, you know, masculine dominated and Marriage. women are not yeah. necessarily the ones that are getting guns. Um, so guns, guns are not. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I just, I was just going to add to that, that honestly, that one, that part is probably easier to um, understand than the uh, class demographics and uh, uh, geographic demographics, because it's it, that just plays right into um, uh, the this uh, male-dominated culture that we have, uh, you know, yeah. sho uh, Western chauvinism. Uh, 
which is that, like you said, men are the protectors uh, and must protect the women. The women must be diminutive and submissive, and that's just not conducive to uh, fighting and defense. So it's just, yeah, the, the fact that, that gun ownership is just so heavily weighted towards uh, uh, men uh, really makes a lot more sense um, just because of the, the, the culture in the United States that uh, favors men and uh, it creates this this image that uh, of the ideal man, you know, hyper-masculine and ready to defend their family at a moment's oh, notice. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think that this, these ideas of what the masculine, the ideal masculine and the ideal feminine are, uh, I would say they, they are firmly entrenched within the, the bigger kind of Christian religious narratives uh, that you can trace back to the foundations of, of the colonies that eventually became the United States. And, and so the, the masculinized so. violence and the feminized uh, diminutive nonviolence and pacifism maybe um, all arise from the ideas of, of how Christian Christianity maybe conceives uh, in like a biblical sense or some some sort of uh, doctrinal sense of you, what these roles are supposed to be because um, th that's always played a big part in in the foundation and continuation uh, of the United States. Very much so. Um, but yeah, so you know, my my analysis is that guns are not a poor person's tool or hobby. People who are precariously employed, nope. underemployed, or unemployed, uh, and people who are living at or near the poverty line, uh, they're not going to be out there spending the little money they have on firearms. And so when you factor the socioeconomic barriers, and uh, also when you look at political disenfranchisement, which we haven't even talked about, um, but political disenfranchisement caused by structural racism and structural sexism in a state that is violent, patriarchal, and white supremacist in nature, as well as being settler colonial in, in its formation. This makes guns all but inaccessible to people of color, to non-men, and specifically, or especially, non-men of color. And so here, what I'm really yes. thinking about with those structural issues are going to be incarceration rates, disparities in school funding, racial discrimination and sex and gender discrimination in the workplace and in society at large, domestic violence, intimate violence, voter suppression, and the list goes on. So um, to, to highlight yeah. an example that I think a lot of people might be able to understand more readily given a lot of the rhetoric about uh, this, the South specifically. So when you look at the South, in places that are like the South, we know that wages are among the lowest in the country in the South. We know that worker protections are limited or non-existent. A lot of right-to-work states are located in the South. We know that uh, states that are run by outwardly racist and often religiously oriented political institutions, um, and, and also states that maintain power through political disenfranchisement of people of color, especially black people. Um, we, we know that this goes on in the South uh, maybe more so than a lot of others, uh, other places. Uh, poverty rates are highest in the country in the South. 
and poverty rates are especially concentrated in black communities living in the South. So I would say it's pretty reasonable yeah. to draw the conclusion that the people buying guns are going to be people who have more financial security. They're going to um, be the ones who at least lack structural, racial, and gender barriers to financial security. And ultimately what this means is it's rich white people that are buying the guns, specifically rich white men. I, that's that's kind of my my yeah. overall analysis, my overall take on, on this. Rich white men are buying up all the guns. Yes, uh, very much so. And so, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I didn't really have anything that important. I was just going to point out that the, the Las Vegas shooter uh, is a perfect example of that. The man had a, had a massive arsenal in that hotel room. And, uh, and, and they were not cheap weapons. Some of them were very expensive, uh, well over $2,000. And he, I mean, he had, what, two dozen guns, uh, something like that. And that man was rich as hell. He was a, he was a, he was a, a landlord um, that owned multiple really expensive properties. So, yeah, he fits yeah, right definitely. into that demographic. And I, I think that... Um, when we look at like all of these factors that kind of influence who owns guns, we can also start drawing conclusions about who owns and runs gun shops and gun manufacturing. And so like, I, I don't have the statistics for this. It's pure conjecture. And really that's because I, I tried looking for the statistics and I didn't find anything that was useful or helpful for the research. But like, if you consider the history of wealth accumulation in the United States, and you think about how that history intersects with the uh, the history of enslavement and racism, and then you you look at the history of who uses guns and who uses violence to achieve their political and economic objectives, um, I would say that it means that the people who, I guess, have the the means to open up a gun shop or or a gun gun related business, or you know, really any business, not just limited to guns, it's going to be those who have inherited yeah. wealth, um, and those who just lack structural barriers. So that's my my very uh, wordy way of saying it's white people again, white white men who are going to be uh, as a whole, they're going to skew towards being wealthier and and um, generally going to be more conservative. So like. I don't know. To to me, the the gun owners and the people who own the the gun means of production. I haven't developed a better term for that. But the people who are making guns and who are selling guns and who are who are uh, fulfilling, I guess, like the bourgeois role of of gun sales and and ownership of the whole industry. It's still going to be generally Christian white men who are driving this yeah. and um, yeah, I, I'd be willing to bet that, uh, that if you were ever able to find uh, numbers of people who own gun manufacturing companies, I'd be willing to bet not a single one of them is non-white. I, I, I would wager money on that. Um, I, I think that the highest echelon in the gun uh industry that you'll start to see uh, non-white people is 
is gun store owners. I think that's about as high as as uh, any of them get, uh, because, like you said, it has to. They have to have generational wealth uh, to start a company like that. And most most gun manufacturing companies are legacy companies. They've they've been in operation for hundreds of years, uh, and are a lot of them are even still family owned, uh, and so they're. Yeah, yeah, they're definitely all white. And um, I think when when you consider the the political orientation, which again is going to be more conservative, and that's that's being nice. I I think they're going to be more reactionary and kind of the the Marxist conception of the term. They're going to be, you know, fascistic or at least uh, sympathetic to fascist tendencies. And uh, due to perhaps religious beliefs, but also due to those, uh, you know, more fascistic sympathies, like you're going to see a lot of racism. You're going to see a lot of hostility towards uh, queer people, people that come from the LGBTQ uh, kind of part of society. And um, yeah, it's, it's going to be hostile to, to people of color and to queer people. And, you know, I, I, I can personally attest to this from my own experience within the industry. Um, I, I've encountered a lot of transphobia, homophobia, various forms of nativist sentiments like xenophobia and, and just outright overt racism. Um, and, and a lot of the time it came from customers in the, in the environment that I was working in, but I, I would be lying if I did not say that there were maybe some staff that also uh, you know, kind of upheld these ideas. Well, it's the only way to make um, their advertising strategy make sense because any business that is only focused on profits wouldn't restrict their uh, their their the demographic that they're trying to sell to to just you know white people. They would want to expand that to everyone uh, and. To, to maximize profits. And so the fact that they're not doing that, I mean, they blatantly cater to just white conservative people. Um, the fact that they do that, it, the only explanation is bigotry, racism, uh, homophobia, transphobia. Um, why else would they not yeah, want to no, sell and them actually, guns? As, as you're As you're talking about that, I think this is actually a really good point. I just thought of this. Um, you know, usually the conception of capitalism and actors within a rational economic uh, organization of, I don't, I don't know the economic terminology, but like the, the kind of classic, the, the, the classic definition of like liberal capitalism is that individuals yeah. are rational actors that will act in their, in, in their best interest. And so within a market structure, you sh should theoretically see people that are maybe trying to advertise, as you said, trying to advertise to everybody, because that is going to provide you with a larger uh, audience, I guess, or like a base of economic support from which you can, you can derive higher revenue, higher profit. And so what's, what's really telling about this idea of capitalism being some sort of rational phenomenon is that when you throw in racism and xenophobia and bigotry and whatever else, 
and and you push away those uh, those potential markets for revenue, you know, revenue extraction or whatever. I I think it goes to show that, you know, this is still occurring under capitalism, but they're not they're not undertaking the rational position of giving it to everyone. They're they are engaging in bigotry and all those other forms of hatred, which means that they they are okay with losing out on their maximum potential profit in order to cater to a specific group. So like, if anything, that is telling that maybe capitalism isn't about rational action. Maybe, maybe there's something else that upholds that. Right. I'm not articulating that very well, but am I hopefully illustrating the point? Oh, I think you're articulating it perfectly. Uh, the goal of capitalism, uh, despite what anyone thinks is not actually profits. It's about power. Um, the only reason that profits are emphasized so much is because uh, the the easiest way to gain power is by having a lot of money, and so that that's uh, the avenue that uh, capitalism uh, prioritizes. But because power is the true goal, uh, they are willing to sacrifice profits in some cases in order to maintain their power. And so the the gun industry is dominated by white people. So it, it it only makes sense that they would want to maintain that that power, which would mean not uh, not advertising to yeah, non-white it's, people. It, it's interesting how I think that you know this guns as a symbol, arguably of of like the ultimate expression of capitalism, because gun guns can or i guess the united states cannot exist without imagery of of firearms being appended to it like that's just the united states always exists with guns guns always exist in relation to the united states that's how the rest of the world perceives us that's how we perceive ourselves and so it's just well it's on the yeah, seal it, of the united states uh, it, in a symbolic sense the the eagle is clutching arrows, which I mean, they're a weapon of war. And what is the modern yeah, weapon of exactly. war? Firearms. And so, um, yeah, it's 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 just really telling for the the um, the symbol of global capitalism, the United States, and the, the symbol of of the tools of violence that upholds capitalism, being guns. You know, guns and the United States are sometimes one and the same. And the fact that the symbol of capitalism yeah. cannot cast itself in the, uh, you know, the supposed classical definition of what capitalism should be as conceived of by like Adam Smith or whoever, I don't know. Um, but there's, yeah, there's just something, yeah, Adam Smith. there's just something that is really interesting about that dynamic. And I think there's uh, perhaps a degree of irony that, you know, we can't even claim to to actually demonstrate the supposed principles that we try to uphold as a uh, national settler colonial project that undertakes in global imperialism to um, create capitalist uh, projects around the around the globe. Yeah, it. Uh, I'm a I'm a pretty big Star Trek fan, and uh, the the quark. The, the character from Deep Space Nine, he's a blatant capitalist. And the, the really interesting thing is he, uh, it's a character that represents both 
of the negative sides of capitalism most of the time, but then sometimes they use the character to represent the ideal capitalism. And one of those times was there was an episode, I don't remember the, the exact lines, but basically the character says that he doesn't sell weapons because there's no profit in violence, because why uh, you're killing half of your potential uh, customers. And it's just, it's that always stands out to me because that's, that's the kind of capitalism that the propaganda sells us, like you just described. That that's what they say capitalism is. That it's a it's a peaceful ideology. Because why would you want to kill your 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 customers? But in reality, it's it's not. It's violent because it's really about power. And uh, and yeah, it's just no, that's that's totally related. I, I I think your assessment that it's truly about power is um is spot on. And it's it's not really something that I've thought about myself too much, um, although it makes it makes complete sense in retrospect because, you know, what is capitalism that other than the subjugation of people and the oppression of people in order to maximize, um, you know, the profit that can be extracted out of their labor value, if I'm using my terminology correctly, hopefully I'm close, but um, yeah, I mean that that's. I would agree. Capitalism is ultimately about uh, maintaining power over some sort of subjugated group or oppressed group to extract and maximize profits and to extract and maximize uh, rent. Well, it evolved out of mercantilism, which uh, was explicitly about power. It was about subjugating native populations uh, in order to maximize, uh, in order to extract profits from them, in order to uh, take those profits back home, and then of course subjugate the, the the lower classes back home in Europe and the and then the United later the United yeah, States. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, and um, yeah, I it's probably enough riffing on on that topic. So there's there's something uh, that arises from the this phenomenon of guns being conservative or politically reactionary and uh, coming from primarily white, you know, masculinized positions within society. Um, I, I think that those have a really significant impact on, I guess, how the industry itself is oriented. So I think we've kind of already established that the industry is, is rooted in, uh, in bigotry and, um, I, I know, again, from personal experience that they really play on a lot of fear to um, kind of hype up the bigoted ideas and make it seem like guns are a rational uh, product to purchase in response to the presence of those fears yeah. that you have. And um, so, like, if, if you are scared of violent thugs and felons, you know, if, when I say those words, if you yeah. are on the conservative right or you are a fascist reactionary type, you have uh, a very specific idea of what that means. If if you are a liberal, you can probably yeah. tell what that language means. It's coded. It it is it is coded to mean sure. non-white people. I I would challenge anyone to say to tell me that. Uh, that when they hear the word thug, they don't see a black person because 
that that is the narrative that has been created in the media for decades now. It, it, it's a word that they came up with uh, to you know as a stand-in for the N-word because they, they they don't they don't say that one on the air anymore. So then they just made a new word that that means the same Absolutely. thing. And so they, yeah, they create this word that means the same thing. It is, it is still essentially a racial epithet and they use it play on fears of, you know, non-white people that are animalistic or are violent or savage or any other term you can use to describe non-white people in very racist, you know, colonizer ways. Um, they, they use that terminology to plan these fears to sell their guns and when you walk into gun shops um again these gun shops i think we've created a reasonable expectation that these gun shops are going to be primarily owned by conservative white usually christian men and so when you walk into these gun shops and the first image you see is like a poster of like a, a some special forces operator or like a like a SWAT, you know, oh, a yeah. SWAT high speed cop, um, or, or and this is something that I think might need a little bit more exploration. You'll you'll even see these uh, kind of idealized images of the uh, the old Mountain West in the era of exploration. So like oh, yeah. think Teddy Roosevelt years, and you know the the Wild West where it's the it's it's the the ranchers and the cowboys that are fighting the natives and the escaped convicts and and you know especially in the southwest the the mexicans there's a a gun store uh it's unfortunately one of my favorite gun stores in uh, back home in helena uh and it is yeah the entire store is covered in old um uh 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 paintings uh, they're covers of the rifleman which is you know the nra's magazine and they've had it for for at least a century and it's covered in the old ones and uh, i think you know the style it's exactly what you've described it's all very um serene pictures of there's like a, a lone hunter and he's looking out across the mountains and they're all paintings like that in that uh early 20th century style um like uh, what's that famous painter that did like the the, the thanksgiving dinner painting that everybody um, knows is it it's thomas kincaid or something like that uh, yeah something like that it's like they're all yeah. kind of very similar from that period and yeah the, the whole store is full of those that's yeah you're, you're exactly right that's the, the image that they try and conjure up which ties yep. right into manifest destiny. It ties into destiny. manifest destiny, and then when when they use the military imagery and the the police imagery, what they are essentially saying is that, you know, they are supporting those institutions, and we know what those institutions do. The military yeah. and the police fulfill the same role: one on a global scale, the other on a more local scale. The the police oppress black yeah. and brown people here in the United States and and even among white people, the poor and the working class uh, among white people. And then the military does the same exact thing, given that white people make up the the global minority of of, you know, I guess, skin color distribution. Um, you know, most most people around the world are going to be some shade of 
color that white people are afraid of. And so the military mm -hmm. goes to countries and areas where it's, you know, brown people, black people, and, and varying shades. And they go to these areas and they essentially conduct policing actions against them and commit violence against them in the same way that police do back home. Yeah, I, I heard it described recently as uh, a concept that I have I haven't myself read, but it's referred to as uh, Foucault's boomerang. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but to roughly paraphrase it, I guess Foucault examined the the dynamics of um, of how the imperialist countries will they'll develop new forms of violence in the in the places they colonize, and then they they refine and perfect these forms of violence that have never been carried out before because they're using it against whatever subjugated population and then they turn around and the boomerang part of this uh, Foucault's boomerang is that they bring it home and they use it at home against their own populations and so what you know what you see is yeah. the the rise of u.s militarism abroad has translated to or has you know it has come back around in boomerang form to the United States, where now we have uh, hyper-militarized police forces that are, you know, in some cases, they're walking around with more hardware than a lot of us had when we were deployed in combat zones. Yeah, so definitely more than I yeah. ever had, but I mean, I wasn't yeah. uh, in combat. And I, you know, so. I, I was yeah. in an infantry unit in a, in a combat zone, and granted, we weren't doing a necessarily a combat mission, at least not the majority of our, uh, our task force that was out there but I, I have spoken to people who were in the thick of it in iraq and afghanistan back during you know the invasion of iraq i know people that had less shit during the what somebody referred to me as the wild west years of iraq in 2004 and 2005 then then these these oh, fucking yeah. cops I, yeah. show up in you know in ferguson and uh baltimore and minneapolis you know, and they're wearing just way more shit and they have, you know, like I, I know people that they had to weld on their own steel plate armor to their Humvees in the invasion in Iraq. And then these cops mm -hmm. are showing up yeah. with their, their up armored MRAPs and Bearcats and whatever else already, you know, already ready to fight some sort of like terrorist threat that has uh, EFPs or, um, you know, IEDs yeah. or something. It's it's completely unreal how how much shit they bring to yeah. uh, to these riot control actions that they they participate in. And you know the the where the U.S. has fought wars over the course of its history really uh, puts that the the the, the boomerang uh, 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 analogy. Uh, into perspective because there's in all the history of the united states and all the wars that it's fought in military and police actions there's only been two wars that have been fought in countries that are predominantly white and not counting obviously um the, the conquest of what is now the united states uh but those two wars are world war one right. and world war two that's it and and the united states went entered those wars reluctantly so 
it's a it, it's it's always been focused right. on well, non-white countries. The only reasons that you know World War One and World War Two were fought within the metropole, the the overall European metropole, was because World War One was a war about the reorganization and redistribution of colonial holdings across the rest of the world, and the powers fighting to see who right. would reign supreme over those colonial holdings in the global South. World War Two, you know, of course yep. that occurred initiated by the Germans in um, in Europe to start the conquest of the European continent along, uh, you know, racialized ideas um, as they conducted the Holocaust. And, and the U.S. didn't give two shits until we got attacked by Japan. And even then, the only reason the U.S. Uh, went to war with Germany is because Germany declared war on the U.S. If they hadn't declared war, I think that the United States would have restricted all of its military action towards fighting Japan. Right. Would have Japan served as the primary source of um, competition in the Pacific and in uh, Southeast Asia for American imperial projects. And... Um, Yep. So that that was, you know, certainly a war of imperialism against Japan and our major actions against the European fascists. You know, yeah, we started in on the African continent in North Africa against the Germans and the Italians. Yeah. And why were yeah. we in the African continent? Well, because of global imperialism. And then the only reason we took. Yep. The only reason we took it to the mainland was because we had to hit them at their um you know, at the source, we, we fought in Italy, which at the time, you know, we probably didn't really consider Italians to be white anyway. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. So no, yeah, we, we fight in Italy against a non-white entity to, to fight against um, Mussolini's military might. And then only in uh, 1944, do we actually embark upon a campaign in the actual German homeland to fight against Hitler. And it's not to say yeah. that we were fighting against fascism because Hitler took his inspiration from British and, um, and American imperial projects. And he took his ideas about concentration camps from the British, the way they were using concentration camps in the, uh, the Boer Wars in South Africa and the Southern African continent. And then the, um, I, I think they're called the Reconcentrados or something of, of the sort in uh, the Philippines and in Cuba. That's what the Americans were using against dissidents and insurgents, especially in the Philippines. And so, yeah, um, yeah the, uh, Hitler's German um, project of genocidal, you know, whatever, genocidal fervor was rooted in American ideas about racism. They took inspiration from Jim Crow laws and... Did. They copied yeah. them almost so then, verbatim. You know, cut to today where gun shops are upholding these ideas, not just from modern military and law enforcement structures, but they are specifically, um, uh, they are utilizing and are evoking this imagery from the era of American genocide. Uh, and not to say we're not still conducting genocide, but you know, the era of open genocide against the natives that were still present on the land. And, and of course they still are today, but like, you know, the, that was the, the era when we were killing them and telling them to move elsewhere. 
and gun shops gun shops are yeah. utilizing imagery from all of these institutions and all of these uh processes to sell their guns because again guns are a white conservative uh and really reactionary phenomenon and guns uphold capitalism through white supremacy and capitalism and white supremacy were founded on indigenous genocide and the enslavement the theft and enslavement of people from their fucking homeland on the african continent and so yeah. it's impossible to create a culture of like a gun industry that is not somehow tied to those ideas and to those things it's it is yeah. it is really really um hard to break away from those it's very stark it's, it's uh when you really look at it like this it's uh it's hard to deny it it's uh, really i i uh yeah it's it's yeah. pretty tough so um my last question for you now that we've talked about how daunting the task is of, of trying to create something better just because of the, the foundations of gun ownership and how it intersects with white supremacy and capitalism and what have you. Do you think it, it possible to create maybe a different culture of, of guns and, and gun shops within the left? And, um, you know, what, what would something better look like? How, how could we move past all of these issues and build something better whether it's a co-op or even if it's a more you know traditionally organized like business what could better look like compared with all of these demographics and all of these trends we've talked about all of the you know the trajectories that have been set through racism and capitalism and oppression is there a way what do you think uh, very much so. I actually think that firearms is the avenue uh, that the left can use in order to expand um, ourselves to, and to bring in more people uh, and raise class consciousness be, uh, precisely because um, the, the conservatives have put so much of an emphasis on it. Uh, it's, be, it's, it's, it's their primary strength right now but that also means that it, it is their weakness because they've become such a single issue a demographic. Um, I already know just from my own personal experience that I, I have been able to uh, bring conservatives in and to actually get them to seriously listen to what I have to say, both about capitalism and, uh, and racism in the United States, simply by pointing out that I agree with them about gun control, that it's such an important issue for them that when they truly not just hear it, but understand that you, what you're saying, that immediately makes them rethink everything that they have thought about communists and socialists. Um, so I, I don't just think it's it's possible. I think it's imperative that we emphasize this point and that we we try to recruit uh, conservatives along this line because uh, they, they, they really are, for a lot of them, single issue voters. My, my dad is a good example of that. Um, he, the only reason that he voted for Trump in 2016 was because and this is what 
word for word what he told me when I confronted him about it is uh, he hate, hated Trump. He acknowledges his racism and all of that, which, I mean, doesn't speak too well for my dad since he voted for him. But the, uh, the single reason that he voted for him is he said he was afraid that Hillary is going to take away our guns. And that's it. If it wasn't for that one thing, he wouldn't have bothered even voting in that election. And so that's a, a way that I have been able to uh, get him to listen and get a lot of my conservative uh, former friends to listen to what I have to say. It's a, it's a very useful tool. It's a it's very much a double edged sword. The conservatives use it to rally their base and and uh, and and exert control and um, and white supremacy. But that also means because it's such an important tool, it's a linchpin. And when we take that linchpin away from them, their entire system will crumble. Um, I, I don't know if that's necessarily the answer you were looking for, but that's uh, that's what comes yeah, to mind. No, that, you that's that um, to me. That's actually pretty good. I'm. I do have some questions about what you said, though. So if if we utilize guns as the, I guess, like the point of organization, how do we go about uh, successfully rejecting militarism and and encouraging uh, conservatives or or other other non-leftist groups that might be fellow travelers on the basis of guns. How do we encourage the rejection of of militarism and the worship of law enforcement and and upholding uh, the ideas that underpin those organizations or those institutions? That one is the toughest part, I think. Um, it's I haven't found uh, the most effective strategy for that. Really, uh, it's the biggest hurdle. Uh, but I think there is something to pointing out that um, they, because guns are such an important issue for conservatives, um, and the the main point is they're terrified that the government is going to take their guns. The, the the most effective, though it's not that effective, uh, but the most effective strategy I have found so far is just pointing out that who do you think is going to take your guns away? It's the very people that they throw their support behind the police and the military. Um, and there, there is the, the one place that really does help with that is the fact that the conservatives do have a deep distrust of the federal government. And so that you could kind of use that as a, a way to work your way in to get them to listen by pointing out that uh, if the government ever did go door to door confiscating guns, it would probably be the ATF spearheading it. And so you could point that out and that might get them to listen, but it really is the biggest hurdle. And I don't have a really good answer yeah. for that question. I think that um, at least for people who did serve in the military and, and especially who maybe saw combat, there might be something to uh, a, a, strategy that i've seen from organizations like um about face veterans and some other anti-war types where they they make an appeal to like thank you for your service the fact that you served honorable whatever but let's take a look at what interests were you actually serving and oh you know i see that you are a disabled yeah. veteran or you lost you know you have that bracelet that shows that you lost whatever friend in in combat or due to warfare and it's it's about 
you know, trying, trying to establish solidarity and the fact that like, you know, who, who were you serving and getting them to acknowledge that they were serving the, the rich, they were serving the capitalist classes and, you know, they were not serving their interests Mm -hmm. as, you know, especially if they are enlisted in the military, regardless of their racial makeup. If they are enlisted in the military, they are already pitted against the officer corps from a from a class perspective, and um, yeah, you know, if they are enlisted, they are taking orders. They are they are, you know, being treated as, um, you know, instead of like as as units of production as you might see under a typical capitalist undertaking. Uh, instead, they are they are the units of violence, but. Um, you know, they, they, they still, their interests are not what are being considered. It's the mission that is being considered above their, their livelihood right. and their, their own lives themselves. So like finding a way to talk to them about the fact that they were sacrificing their lives and all of their sacrifices maybe were actually in vain because, you know, here's this end result. I think personally, that's the way that we try to build that bridge with the more conservative types. Um, I'm sorry. And that's a good that's a good point uh, because I've actually had an easier time talking to other veterans uh, uh, along these about all of these subjects. Um, they've uh, at least, and it's all anecdotal, but my experience has been um, they're the most receptive to it because they they are they're, every veteran I have ever met has been completely disillusioned uh, at, at the very least by the military itself. And the and the conflict between enlisted and officer is a good point. Um, at least in my unit, it was because there was a lot of antagonism between the two groups. And it what it and I think that there's at least that exists at least to some degree throughout the military. Um, and it's not so much that the 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 enlisted um, resent being expendable uh, at the you know in order to achieve the mission. It's the fact that. Um, at least in my experience, the that's not the case. They're being uh, used as expendable fodder to advance the career of the officers. Um, and I saw that time and time again in my enlistment. I, I, I was disgusted with it too. I would see officers that would throw their own uh, men under the bus in order to uh, to make themselves look good. They, they would create problems. And then they would uh, they would throw themselves in uh, with the quote unquote solution to the problem that they created, and then that's also so that they can get on their uh, their OER um, that check that little box that they're a problem solver. And we saw that a lot, and that was something we talked about a lot when I was in, and, and it was a huge point of contention. So that's that's a really good point. That that's a really good avenue to take to uh, draw them in and get them to listen. And then once you get veterans on your side, that that helps with the the the, the civilian uh, population because they have this this uh, um, they've religified veterans. They're, they're the it's a complicated situation. They've religified the idea of veterans, but the veterans themselves, um, I don't know. They, they don't they don't seem to care that much. So I, I don't know. It's a complex issue. I haven't really thought of it from that avenue much. 
So I probably yeah, don't. No, I, I think um, I think it is something worth uh, giving more exploration. Uh, probably a whole other episode dedicated to that. Yeah. Um, it, there, there's a lot to that, and I, I know I've I've had some successes in in talking to people on that basis, and um, it's been fairly limited. It's been very difficult to to find find a good way to articulate how they're not despite my own personal feelings on this subject, they're not scumbags necessarily as a result of their service. And by the way, as a result of your service, you were part of an exploited group who, you know, you benefited in very many ways from, from being a veteran, but also here's how you were taken advantage of. And here's how you and your friends suffered and died in vain. Um, and, and in the furtherance of, some rich person's portfolio, you know, in, in, um, increasing the profit or the revenue for a company like KBR, uh, KBR Halliburton, or, or boosting oil profits and securing oil profits for whoever might benefit from those. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it is a difficult task. And um, I know that I, I myself don't have a good, a good blueprint for how to undertake those conversations just yet. Um, do you do you yeah. think that the left has the ability to create maybe less shitty environments for uh you know promoting the ownership of guns and the sale of guns uh, it has the potential to um there is uh that's a a difficult I, i'm ha having trouble articulating what i'm trying to say um it has the potential to, uh, but there is a tendency to create a, a, a toxic, a very similar toxic uh, culture around firearms uh, that you see on the conservative side. And I don't know how much of that is due to the demographics of leftists um, and the the kind of um, things they focus on, or if it's just uh, because the, the conservative gun culture is the dominant culture, so it just naturally bleeds into leftists trying to create a leftist gun culture. I'm not sure, uh, but I think there is potential. Um, we just have to be very careful and very conscious yeah, about I, it. I agree. I, I've actually, um, I've been thinking about that dynamic a lot where the, the reactionary culture of gun ownership and, and the white focused, white supremacist culture of gun ownership is so pervasive that the left ends up replicating uh, reactionary ideas about the use of violence and and uh, gun ownership and, and how gun ownership should, I guess, fall into a larger political program. I I'm certainly, yeah, okay. the, the tendency. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, the, just adding to that, the, the 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 most reactionary one that I see is you know people suggesting lone wolf actions. And uh, I just, I, I, that terrifies me because if all it would take is one leftist to, uh, to go on some stupid mass shooting, and now you've got the government uh, with a, a, an excuse to say, hey, leftists are dangerous and are shooting people in the streets. It would be so, so detrimental to everything we're trying to build. And that is the most pervasive toxic element that I see 
intruding into leftist yeah, uh, it's, spaces. It's pretty concerning to me because when, when you talk about those lone wolf actions, which I certainly do not at all support or condone, um, I think the idea is that, you know, you go and you carry out whatever violence. I don't think it's even strategic. Um, but once you no. do that, like you're, whoever your targets are, like if you, if you're going on a mass shooting, you're not going to be necessarily uh, discretionary in your use of violence. People are just going to die and you're going to oh. kill fellow working class people. In inevitably, you're going mm -hmm. to kill, uh, you know, it it's going to end up being still an issue of race and class. You'll have accomplished nothing. You will attract all of the wrong attention and you will not have furthered your own agenda. Yep. You will only have alienated more people from it. And yeah, I, I haven't myself mm -hmm. encountered that rhetoric, but I, I know it exists. I encountered a lot, uh, honestly. It's not, uh, and um, it's not as public. Uh, I, the, all the times I encounter it, it's in private messages or in private conversation with uh, other leftists. And it's always something around um, uh, it, it depression talk. You know, you, you, you get, um, you get to voice somewhat suicidal tendencies and there's always someone to crop up and, and say, oh, well, if you're going to do that, go out and blaze the glory, basically, yeah. and go on this shooting spree. And that's how I would, the, the, the context I always hear it in. And it's, 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 it's frankly, it's disgusting me. what it is. It's just somebody is essentially yeah. LARPing. They are, they are fetishizing violence, which is what the yeah. right does. They fetishize violence. Yes. And then they, they, uh, Instead of attempting to reach out to a fellow human being and attempt to, you know, help them through crisis, especially if someone's depressed or having suicidal ideations, instead of reaching out to someone and offering resources and support in a time of crisis, they are encouraging that person to harm themselves to achieve some accelerationist ideation of what politics yeah. should come to. It's not rooted in the will of the masses to utilize, you know, maybe more traditional Marxist or Maoist uh, terminology, but it is, it is not rooted in the will of the people. And so you are going to alienate no. your political idea and ideology from the most of the people when they see you doing this stupid bullshit. And they're like, we want nothing to do with that. It doesn't generate power. It has no strategic political, uh, aim or impact it is terrible and it is it is born yeah. out of reactionary it is born out of fucking fascist accelerationist ideas about how to create race war that's what yeah. the adam Waffen does this shit it's it's not it shouldn't be socialists doing it socialists yeah. are are here to improve the conditions of life for all people and to remove oppression that is that is the the leftist goal that's at least that's what it should be adam waffen the neo-nazis the reactionary right they're the ones who say that violence should be used as a means of subjugating people and instituting racially dominant or ethnically dominant groups that uh that stand over others that are somehow lesser It's uh, it also ties into the, 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 conf the primary, not the primary, but one of the big, biggest conflicts between capitalism and, uh, and socialism and communism. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, 
the individual and versus the, the group. And um, that's capitalism prioritizes this hyper individualistic uh, mindset. And that's why you see conservatives um, uh, going on these lone wolf shooting sprees and doing predatory recruitment tactics like Adam Waffen does to try and recruit suicidal people and make turn them into to suicide bombers and shit like that. That's why you see ISIS and, and, and all of these extremely conservative um, uh, t uh, Islamic terrorist groups, for lack of a better term, uh, using that same tactic. They prey on suicidal people to pull them in and turn them into these lone wolf actors. Uh, and it's all rooted in hyper-individualism. And so I think that the, old, the best, the only hope we have to fight against that is to, when we try to create a leftist gun culture, it's centered around the group, uh, basically the primary unit, the lowest primary unit that we should ever try to, uh, to, to emphasize would be a community defense uh, group. Uh, and that might be the only, the only way we have to try and combat that hyper-individualism, to, to emphasize that if you're gonna be carrying a gun for any kind of uh, tactical situation, it should always be as a group, and you're, you're working as a group in order to defend the people. Um, and it's, it's, it's gonna be hard. It's gonna yeah. be very hard. No, I, you're absolutely right, and 100% agree. It is about the group. It is about the collective benefit. It is not ever supposed to be about the individual and how that individual might benefit at the detriment of uh, of of the group or of others. Um, I think, and, and this is this is my last thought before we wrap this up. Um, when it comes to creating, I guess that culture or creating creating the the ability to like start. Uh, helping facilitate that culture you know as a socialist as a communist i think that creating a better model for uh guns whether it's in a gun shop or a gun manufacturing situation whatever the whatever the context um we need to create a space that empowers oppressed people it empowers working class people we have to break the cycle of worker exploitation that is common to uh you know like retail environments or manufacturing environments in, in a more traditional, like, you know, bourgeois versus proletariat type situation where you have the workers who are creating the goods and the bourgeois, you know, the owners that are taking all the profit and leaving their workers to suffer and, and, you know, not receive any of that value that they create. Um, and so, yeah, we have to, we have to do that. And we have, we also have to, um break the existing idea of what like a, a gun store could be and should be and and again yeah. that's the the what it could be and what it should be currently we we think of it in terms of reactionary white supremacist and kind of masculine dominated um masculine domination of the world of guns and so if we think about what recasting that foundation for a leftist oriented shop, for example, could be, you know, how, when we think about how to upend those ideas of violence that reinforce racism, sexism, and other forms of oppression and, and undermine the uh, obsession with violence. Um, I think 
my myself and, I, and this is where i actually kind of disagree with what you said earlier i don't think we should focus on guns um and and I, I i recognize that it is an important an important symbol to focus on when you're talking to people who are more conservative but the i think the issue with the focus on guns at least for people who have the mystified idea of what guns are is that it, it's it is a it is creating a relationship of violence or creating a focus on violence maybe for the people who are more yeah, practically oriented with their guns this may not be a dynamic um and and that's what i would hope hope to see you make a good point a very good point uh, it, it, we would we, we definitely want to demystify the gun uh it should just be seen as for what it is which is a tool so yeah uh, you don't uh uh, you know, when you go to use a shovel, you don't first think about the shovel. You think about exactly. what you're going to use the shovel yeah, yeah. for. Uh, yeah. So, that's, so, that's so the way that I, I kind of see it, um, so we, we remove the focus on the gun and we create a space, whatever kind of space it is, that is focused um, first and foremost on ideas of liberation and solidarity. Um, for me, this place would be a place of education a place of relationship building and a place of sharing. Um, so like a place of mutual aid, a place of, you know, being able to go as a, as somebody who's feeling lonely and depressed and start developing friendships and relationships with other people who are able to understand your struggles in the world and you can understand theirs and you develop a sense of solidarity. I, I know personally, if, if I could, you know, one day do my dream, or uh, successfully fulfill my dream of opening my own like gun shop. What I'd love to do is, you know, yeah, there's there's guns behind the counter, but I also have a full library of radical revolutionary theory, and and like whether it's great. the more traditional Marxist Leninist works and and you know coming from that side of things, or if it's the works of Murray Bookchin and his social liber or what is it libertarian socialism, and then the works of Abdullah Achalan and and his ideas of of uh, democratic confederalism. You know, like I I would want to create a space that has access to all of that. And I'm not talking just books, music, art, poetry, literature. That's what yeah. I would love to see. And and you know, you you create a space that is filled with the history and the philosophy of liberation, and you dedicate it to. The Black Panthers and the Young Lords and the Black Liberation Army and the Kurdish, the YPG, the uh, the People's Protection Units and the YPJ, the the you know Women's Protection Movements, and, and and this is not all inclusive. This is just some examples that come to mind. Um, but you you put the anarchist and the communist and whatever other political philosophy that is that is fundamentally against oppression, and then that's kind of a, a starting point on the educational side. And then you start that relationship building that I talked about. Um, you know, if you have to include like a cafe or so, like a lounge, I don't know. I don't know how to do it, but you find a way to do it. And then, and then really important to this, because I think people will always gravitate towards uh, groups and organizations that are able to take care of their material needs, creating robust mutual aid network in this space would be really cool so like yeah it, it it shouldn't just be guns it should be like oh i need to get clothes because i i'm about to send my kids to school and they have 
no clothes or they're torn and ratty. So like, where can I go to get some clothes for my kids? Oh, I can do that at this place that also just so happens to sell firearms. Oh, you know what? I don't have <laughs> groceries and I, I'm struggling to eat. And where can I go to get access to groceries or at least some like relief related to related to that? This place that also just so happens to have guns in another room, you know, that's off in the back that isn't in focus. To me, that's kind of how you create like a more holistic. I, I really it's it's like a general goods store that you might you might picture from the old west. Yeah. At least as you know, from the way I, I think about it from like cowboy movies or whatever. Yeah. So um I, I really love that. And I'm really glad that you pointed all this out because I never really thought of any of it that way. Uh it the the it, yeah, that's fantastic. The, the the focus, the focal point should not be the gun, it should be the community. Um because that's what even that's that's what you even have the guns for in the first place. Uh, and it's all it's all very similar to what the Black Panthers were about. Like they had guns and they were the, their guns were very prominent, but it wasn't about the guns and they never made it about the guns. Right. It was about the people. So that's yeah, they, uh, fantastic. They specifically really when it came excuse me when it came to guns and and carrying guns, they had rules in place where if if you were not willing to use that gun for whatever purpose you had set in mind to use it for, you didn't even carry it. You just left it. Like the 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 main goal was we yeah. are here to liberate the people. And when when they carried guns to patrol the streets and protect the people of their neighborhoods against the the Oakland police and, and the other neighborhoods where they did it, um, it was because they were fucking ready to use those if need if need be to protect the lives of people who were you, you know they had the, the the boot of the Oakland PD or whatever police department on their necks and um yeah that that's historically that's what they carried for and and they very they were very clear about the use of guns you you have it on you because you're willing to use it or you don't have it on you which means that you know you you focus on the other work you're doing regardless of your status as yeah. armed or unarmed i i'll i'll admit i don't know how to achieve all of these ideas they're very lofty goals can i don't i don't know that a co-op can necessarily achieve that because usually when you make a co-op like everyone's probably not wealthy that's trying to get into a co-op so you might not even yeah. have the ability to buy into the business because um it's it's expensive to run a gun shop you need all of the all of the yeah, materials to start, which is all the guns. And if guns are a few hundred a pop, and you're you know, markup typically, uh, from my experience, is like twenty to thirty percent on guns. It's not a whole lot. Accessories, on the other hand, that's where you make money. You mark those up hundred percent. Yeah. But um, guns specifically <laughs> are not marked up a lot. So my employee discount on guns that I would get, like if a gun normally was like five fifty, I'd get it for like four forty. So yeah, it's like a 20, 20% or so, uh, kind of rough, terrible math in my head. Um, but yeah, so like you still need access to that stock and you're not going to get that by being, pro, you know, professed communists who don't have any money. You still need some sort of, right. uh, startup capital to, to buy into it. And if you're going to start buying into a project like that, then, um, 
and, and you have to start making the the fiscal decisions to to you know are are you going to make the hard shitty choice today to keep the shop open tomorrow you know that's not necessarily going to be the uh, the liberatory action yeah. that you thought you would be doing when you were starting your your co-op yeah it's hard um but that's why that's why one thing that i always try to stress to people when they they um lament the fact that they don't have all the answers is that, that nobody has no single person has to have all the answers i mean that's a that's a very capitalist mindset that's that you have, one person has to be our savior and come up with all the solutions and uh like we're communists we don't have to do that we don't work that right. way we pool our resources and that goes also for finding uh solutions to yeah. problems i i would love and and you know part of why i started this project and and the reason i ask these types of questions going beyond the tech the technical aspects of guns which i know a lot of people really like and they focus on but i'm curious about the philosophy behind these things and and how do we approach these things and, yeah. and so what i'm hoping with this project is maybe people listen and they're like hey i have some good ideas and hopefully somewhere down the line someone somewhere with a group of people of like-minded individuals are able to achieve this thing that we're pondering and don't necessarily have the solution for because they they got together and they put their resources yeah. together and they brainstormed it and they made it a larger project of a group of people with uh liberation uh you know liberatory goals in mind so yeah yeah adam uh what is your social media uh where where can people find you i know you're on TikTok and instagram where you know what what are those locations where else can people find you yeah i uh i've kind of been moving away from facebook but i, I mean i might i might come back who knows I, I haven't deleted any accounts um the 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 two primary ones that i use right now are TikTok and twitter um I, uh, uh, my, my main Twitter account is suspended right now. Uh, and it's, it's a long story. It's stupid. Um, I do have a backup one. It's, uh, at red Montana, all one word underscore org. Uh, I was trying to build an organization, uh, back home, uh, for a while and it didn't work out, but I still use the Twitter account from it. <laughs> and, uh, my main one is just my name. Uh, uh, both of them are called uh, Pinko Scum right now, and uh, on on uh, TikTok, uh, my handle is I think laugh the laughing communist. I think um, yeah, I mostly use TikTok right now. I do have a YouTube channel which I've really been neglecting, and I really should get back to doing it. Uh, it's it is uh, I think it's just Adam Danker, if I remember right. Uh, but yeah, my my my, my social oh, yes. media is a mess. Uh, <laughs> yeah, very, very I don't think we've tapped into uh, social media the same way that the Zoomers have, especially with like TikTok. So, us, yeah. us, yeah, yeah I've never uh, us millennials who are now looking like boomers as we fail to update our social media. I had to ask. I had to make a video on TikTok, and I haven't gotten an answer yet. But I had to ask a very old man question, and it was a very it's a very come to Jesus moment for me. I'd ask him how you zoom in the stupid app. Uh, the way, at least the way I see him all doing it. So yeah, I'm very much moving into that. 
Um, yeah, my YouTube channel okay. is just Adam Danker. So uh, Adam Adam Danker and or La- uh, excuse me, laughing communist, and uh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. There's going to be a day where we're we're going to TikTok to ask how to open a PDF file. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's coming. It's coming. Yeah, thank you so much I'm for uh, coming on the podcast and uh, talking with me about the demographics of gun ownership and uh, and about the demographics of who owns all of the means of production related to guns. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Gringo, go home. Los obreros de América Latina te dicen... Gringo, go home. Yankee, go home. Levanten tus manos la bandera de la revolución. América Latina obrera y grita con fuerza. Yankee, go home. Yankee, go home.